Welcome to Spirit in Action. My name is Mark Helpsmeet, and each week we bring you visits and conversations with people doing healing work for this world, hearing what they're doing and what inspires them and supports them in doing it. Welcome to Spirit in Action. Dia Abdo is the founder of Every Campus a Refuge and the author of American Refuge, True Stories of the Refugee Experience. Dia was herself of a Palestinian refugee family in Jordan. She then studied in the USA and ended up settling in Greensboro, North Carolina, working at Guilford College as an English professor with specialties in teaching Arab and Muslim feminisms and Arab women writers. Dia's book shares both the stories of the refugees who have come through the Guilford resettlement efforts and an understanding of the realities and processes that govern the lives of refugees. Thanks to Andrew Jansen for production assistance on today's program. Dia Abdo joins us via Zoom from Greensboro, North Carolina. Dia, how wonderful to have you here today for Spirit in Action. It's wonderful to be here. Thanks so much for having me, Mark. And you're somewhere down right by Guilford College in Greensboro, North Carolina. Is that right? Yes. I've lived in Greensboro for the last 14 years. Does it feel like home at all yet? I know your soul was left with your grandmother overseas, but how does it feel for you now? I love being in Greensboro. It does definitely feel like home. I've lived in a few places in the United States when I first came In 96, I lived in New Jersey, but I've had both of my daughters here in Greensboro. A lot of really important things have happened to me here. Greensboro is a a remarkable place. For those of you who don't know about Greensboro, it's the third largest city in North Carolina, but still very much feels like a hometown. It's about 300,000 people, and yet it feels very cozy. There are over 150 languages spoken in Greensboro. We've been welcoming uh, folks from all over the world as refugees and immigrants for the last 40, 50 years. And so it it is really comforting to me when I take my children downtown and we see people speak every possible language you can imagine, every possible skin color, every possible traditional dress, and nothing is out of the norm, nothing is unusual. It's an international community, and I really enjoy raising my children in a place like that. How does the population divvy up in terms of European-based versus all of the rich people you describe in your book, American Refuge? You talk about this person from Iraq and this person from Burundi and this, you know, people from all over. How does the population locally split up? I think the last census, 13% of Guilford County, where Greensboro is, is foreign-born. Over the years, because of Greensboro and Guilford County's role in welcoming and resettling refugees, North Carolina is second to New York on the eastern seaboard in refugee resettlement, and Guilford County gets a a hefty sort of number of refugees out of the the number that comes to North Carolina. So yeah, 13% is foreign-born, and we have one of the largest Montagnard populations in the country in Greensboro. We have folks from Bhutan, from Burma, from Nepal, from the DRC, and from Iraq and Syria. I don't know the exact percentages, but I would say that they are robust and vibrant communities from you know particular parts of the world that have been typically resettling in North Carolina, especially from East Africa, from Burma, from Vietnam, and more recently from the Arab world. 
I think you may be shocking people's opinion of North Carolina. Carolina has been balanced on some kind of a precipice in terms of politics for a while. I certainly know Greensboro to be a particular welcoming place. I've been there at least a few times. And Guilford College, because it's Quaker College, I visited there. So I know that there are some reasons it might be, I don't know, say more liberal or more worldly, more world welcoming than a lot of the other places. I mean, Asheville, North Carolina is a pretty wonderful place too. So I'm, I'm not assuming that Greensboro is the only nice place. There's Durham and a number of places. Are there other reasons that Greensboro is a particularly wonderful place? I will say that once a city is welcoming, it becomes more welcoming, especially when you're talking about refugee resettlement. The way refugee resettlement works is that, you know, the federal government and the, the resettlement agencies in looking where to resettle refugees, they will send them to places where there already has been refugee resettlement. And so if you've already welcomed a group of refugees, which is what happened to Greensboro in the late 70s, early 80s, we welcomed a large number of Montagnards from Vietnam because the weather was temperate and the geography looked very similar to their geography. And because for the longest time, this has been an affordable place to live, very navigable. And so it's just sort of a kind of a self-fulfilling prophecy in that if you've welcomed refugees, then you are more likely to be assigned refugees for resettlement. I think that's what's happened to Greensboro. It's become over time a place that has built a very significant infrastructure for refugee resettlement and immigrant support. We have many community-based organizations that have developed over time, the New Arrivals Institute, Faith Action International, two resettlement agencies, the Center for North Carolinians at UNCG. And so I think it's sort of a dialectical relationship. People come and infrastructure is built, which allows more people to come. And so I think there's something to be said for that history of refugee resettlement that has allowed us to build up our capacity for welcome. But I would also say that it is just a nice town and very close to everything, right? We're close to Charlotte. We're close to Raleigh. We're close close to the beach, we're close to the mountains. So there's kind of a centrality to Greensboro too. I am a little bit surprised, but I shouldn't be, about the fact that refugees have come one way that the path has been prepared for more refugees to come. But one of the things that's said about the U.S., you know, we're a nation of immigrants, except for the native peoples who immigrated several thousand years ago. Everyone else is limited, you know, it's no more than 500 years ago that immigrants arrived. And so I guess it's one of the sad things that there are a lot of people in the U.S. themselves of immigrant families who are not welcoming to new immigrants. How much does that attitude exist around Greensboro or North Carolina? I want to know how much you're working uphill with the wonderful work you're doing. I would say that that has not been my experience in Greensboro at all. You know, it's no experience, no life is without those moments of challenge and obstacles. But as I've been doing this work of supporting refugee resettlement for the last seven years, the majority of my experiences has been with individuals from every stripe and every faith community and every race and every ethnicity who have been incredibly supportive. And really, the more we see resistance in the narrative and the discourse around us, the more supportive they are. And so I keep telling people whenever 
Whenever a politician says something bad about refugees, I see an uptick in donations and an uptick in people emailing saying, how can I help? I will say that I have not been working uphill at all in Greensboro, but I do recognize that that is not the experience of others, maybe even in Greensboro, nor the experience of others who are doing similar work in other states. I will say that in my experience, the resistance is mostly because people have not necessarily met a refugee or have talked personally to a refugee or have been friends with a refugee or an immigrant. And that when people have a personal experience, their attitude shifts very quickly. So whatever resistance I have met, it has simply been born out of not knowing or out of not having an experience, really out of ignorance. And, you know, so much of what is happening in this community is making it easier for people to meet each other and to see each other in public spaces. And, you know, just the events that happen in Greensboro, World Refugee Day or Unity Walk, where immigrants and refugees are out in the community performing, participating, putting on events that are accessible to everyone and everybody. The more interaction we have between people, the less uphill the path is. But I will say that my experiences in Greensboro have been incredibly positive. And folks, all our listeners here for Spirit in Action, you're going to get to know a lot of refugees rather personally if you read Dia Abdu's book, American Refuge, True Stories of the Refugee Experience. First, I wanted to check one thing. I keep referring to Guilford College, where you're a professor of English, so it's important to refer to it in that way, but I don't think it's the only university or college right there in Greensboro. Are the others also part of this refugee welcoming experience? They are, absolutely, in one way or another. Greensboro is known for, you know, having a lot of universities. So we have University of North Carolina at Greensboro. So we have our state UNC school right here in town, Elon University and their law school. Elon, in fact, has a humanitarian law clinic, which processes and supports asylum seekers and their cases pro bono. So that's a wonderful way in which Elon is involved. The one I mentioned, UNCG, they created a center for new North Carolinians nearly 22 years ago. It was created, founded by a Quaker, Raleigh Bailey, who was instrumental in the resettlement of Montagnard refugees in the late 70s, early 80s. And that center is a robust center that supports with direct services and research over 2,000 immigrants and refugees a year. We also have Bennett College, one of the historically black colleges and universities right here in Greensboro. And they're wonderful students volunteer and have volunteered with our program at Guilford College. We also have another historically black university, A&T, and Greensboro College, of course. So in terms of a, an educational landscape, we're pretty diverse, you know, in terms of the historic nature of the institutions that we have here and one of the oldest Quaker schools in the South, Guilford College, Wilford College is the only chapter that hosts refugees on campus and supports them in their resettlement, but certainly the other institutions support in other ways, as I mentioned. It's in the DNA of Guilford College to be a refuge. As you might know, Guilford College stands on an old woods that used to be part of the Underground Railroad, where escaping enslaved people would hide in the root system of the woods and the Quakers would smuggle them up north. So there's something about that history and that legacy that makes the space of Guilford College particularly amenable to this kind of work, right? To be a sanctuary, literally to be a sanctuary and to be a refuge. So Guilford is the only college or university in Greensboro that is 
is hosting refugees on its campus, but we partner and collaborate with our sister institutions across Greensboro and the wonderful work that they do to support refugees through their programming and certainly with the other community-based organizations here in Greensboro, of which there are many. Well, I want to ask you, Dia, more about Every College a Refuge in a moment, but I think I want to turn my focus now to your book, again, American Refuge. You write in the book that when you came up with this concept in 2015, Every College a Refuge, and you wanted to form it, with Guilford as the first place to do it, you say in the book that you went to the college president, and the college president simply said to you, yes. Was it really that easy? Yes, it was. And I will say that you are not the only one who finds that surprising. That is an absolutely a true story. I went to her office and I said, I have this idea. I think we should use a house on our campus to host refugees. Our partners in town, the resettlement agencies tell us that housing is a huge need. And really, she just said yes. And it is that yes, that is the most pivotal in really the development and creation of a program like this, because the administration has to support using resources and allocating resources in that way. And it was remarkable because the president at the time, Jane Fernandez, said, I think I know what house we can use. We ended up using a different house, but she was already, uh, you know, brainstorming. You know, what was interesting was that the first person that we hosted stayed in an apartment, but the Syrian family that we hosted shortly thereafter stayed in a house in the woods. And so that's why just that significance of that and that symbolism of being in a house in the woods that was home and refuge to many who were, you know, escaping misery and, and looking for a better future is, you know, just really touches me personally. But it really was that easy. And so when I tell that story to other campuses, they are surprised like you and in disbelief because typically it doesn't happen that quickly that a president says yes. Well, especially, you know, Quaker process, which I'm sure you've been exposed to being there at the university. And I don't assume that the university works exactly on Quaker process, but it is deciding things in unity. So there's not generally a person who says go unless they've been preauthorized, you know, in some way, which I suppose the college president could be preauthorized to say, okay, we'll do this with this house. But anyway, what I really want to do is motivate people to read American Refuge. True Stories of the Refugee Experience by Dia Abdo, who's our guest here for Spirit in Action. Every campus of refuge.net, you'll find that link on nordenspiritradio.org, always on Northern Spirit Radio. We have links to all of our guests, and so this is one that you'll want to follow up on. I've got to know you, Dia, on Facebook, where we're friends. But then I found out back in 2017, you wrote a book review for Friends Journal of the book Stepping Stones, A Refugee Family's Journey. So obviously you're doing this work on multiple levels back in 2017. And I haven't seen the November Friends Journal yet. I haven't read it, but I know that there's a review of your book, American Refuge, in that Friends Journal for November. So you're going places and you're getting the word out. The elephant in the room is, I have a feeling that if people are listening to you, they might have thought maybe you're originally from New Jersey, (laughs) but originally you're, I guess, maybe from Palestine via Jordan. Jordan is maybe more your home. Why is your English better than mine? (laughs) 
That's such a great question. I don't know that I have an answer to that. The joke that I make is that I watched Saved by the Bell a lot when I was growing up in Jordan. I was born and raised in Jordan in an Arabic-speaking household. I learned English when I went to school. I went to a really good school, and we learned English from a very young age, and all of my subjects were taught in English with the exception of religion and Arabic. But I am the only one in my family who speaks like this. All of my siblings speak with a very, you know, noticeable Arab accent when they speak in English. And so all I can say is that I suspect that I am one of those people who has an ear for languages. So even when I speak some the Italian that I know or the French that I know, it sounds good and it sounds like it might be a native speaker. I don't speak enough to pass as a native because I think a few sentences in, you'll realize that I don't know all the words that I need to know. But yes, all I can say is I guess I'm gifted linguist. There's actually a lot of English professors out there from different parts of the world, as you can imagine, you know, the focus on theory. And actually, my area of expertise is, and this will probably rattle you, Arab women writers and Arab and Islamic feminisms. So I'm an English professor, but I teach Arab women writers in translation to American students. (laughs) And I saw that when you introduced yourself in American Refuge, as you talk about your family history, which is very moving, you also mentioned that you teach Arab and Muslim feminisms, and it's in plural. It is. (laughs) I had never thought of it, though. I suppose there must be multiple American feminisms, too. Yes. But there are multiple, and I want to talk to you about that later, but let's talk about the book. So you start out the book by introducing yourself. And could you please let people understand a little bit? I mean, Palestinian via Jordan. And then, you know, in 1996, you come to New Jersey. But the family history is important. And your grandmother is very important in this, too. Yeah. So I was born in Jordan, but my parents, both of my parents, were Palestinian refugees. So they were born in Palestine, in Jerusalem. Both of their families were displaced in 1967. And then nine years later, I was born in Jordan, the first of my siblings and and almost all of the cousins. And as I say in the book, our diasporic experience increases, of course, when we just also leave for the West. So there are many of us now in the US, in the UK, in Canada, all over the world. But my parents were born in in Palestine. And in 1967, they were displaced by Israeli occupation, moved to Jordan, uh, as I say, across the river. It's a very short trip at the time. But for my mother and my grandmother, the longest trip or the trip that never happened, especially for my grandmother who died in exile in Jordan, having never returned to Palestine. Her one wish was to be able to return to Palestine and see her homeland and see her house and see her country again. And she was never able to do that. She died in 2008, having never returned. When she first came, uh, she had her two teenage children, my mother and uncle, and they lived in refugee camps in Jordan. My grandmother was completely illiterate. She knit loofahs to make ends meet and valued education more than anything else and made sure that her daughter graduated from university and, um, you know, earned a degree. And my mother instilled the same in me. Both my brother and I have PhDs. And my grandmother saw me graduate and get my PhD. And she was incredibly proud of me for that. For my grandmother and mother, you know, I think it's illustrative of the refugee experience that even when you move to a country next door where people speak the same language, eat similar food, you can still feel so out of place and so homesick that that it consumes you. And that's what happened for my grandmother, who moved from Palestine to Jordan. As I said, it was, you know, a short day's trip back then. You just cross the River Jordan. 
but she still felt incredibly homesick. She felt like she didn't belong. She felt like she was out of place. There were quite a few conflicts between the native Jordanians and the Palestinians at the time. And I described that in my book. And so imagine what it must be like for people who leave Syria and then end up in a place like the United States or a place like Canada, the kind of displacement and the longing and, and the, belong, the lack of belonging that they must experience. So yeah, I was, I was born in Jordan. I was born really and raised on my grandmother's stories of Palestine and what it meant for her to be displaced and the importance of home and the return to home. And so when I left for the United States as a graduate student, that really was a devastating experience for her because she felt like she was losing parts of herself in an iterative process, like constantly divesting herself of family members. People were just leaving. And that's what happens to people who are displaced. They end up kind of inheriting that sense of displacement and it carries with them as they move to other places and sort of never settling or never resettling, right? We're constantly traveling. And so she passed away as soon as I left for the United States uh, the second time in 2008, And that was a really sad experience for me to have lost her. She was very young. She was in her 70s, early 70s. She died of an undetected cancer. And, you know, so much of what I do now as it relates to my work around refugees and kind of supporting the belonging and inclusion and sense of home for newcomers, really a lot of it is for her. And and she's at the top of mind for me when I do this work that I do. Well, it's a depressing and impressive story, both. That's... Hard to make clear, particularly if you don't know enough refugees, if you don't read the stories in American Refuge, how inspiring the survival and the thriving of people can be given the harshness of the situations. And you talk about a whole lot of different refugees you've worked with has helped settle welcome into North Carolina in your book. So we could talk about Blaze. For, for instance, uh, from Burundi, right? By the way, are these the right names or you didn't substitute names, did you? I did not. So Blaze comes from Burundi and I've been to Rwanda and Burundi. I visited the sites, the memorials to the horrible genocide that happened there. I've been in the DRC traveling in an area where 6 million people were killed. I mean, I, it's incredibly horrible situations that people come out of. And when these waves of killing happen and you've got nothing left to do but flee for your life. So was Blaze one of your first refugees you welcomed? No, he was not one of the first. Blaze arrived in 2019. The first refugee that we welcomed on Guilford's campus was Chaps from Uganda, an LGBTQ case. But Blaze was a one of our earlier guests, so in 2019, and he's a young man who was studying uh, psychology and had, you know, been bounced back between countries. His case took a long time for his case to process, as you learn in the book. One of the remarkable things about Blaze is how he has taken on the role of community helper now here in the United States, because he knows what it's like to be a newcomer. And he knows the challenges of being a newcomer, especially when it comes to finding employment, to finding transportation, to finding housing. And very much in his ministerial spirit, Blaze was in many ways a sort of a pastor, a minister in Burundi and and uh, you know was a minister at a church. And he's a very talented singer and songwriter. 
very much in, in line with that spirit of support and help. He's become a community helper himself and, and really is very supportive of the newcomers that he encounters here in Greensboro now. And I really love that sort of cyclical story of the newcomer then becoming the helper, the newcomer becoming the native, becoming the expert, becoming the person who can support a new wave of new neighbors. So we've got your story in the book and Blaze, Chep's, Marwa, Sally's, uh, the Syrian family you already referred to. There's a whole number of stories that are in American Refuge People, true stories of the refugee experience by Dia Abdo. She's our guest here for Spirit in Action. And as always, you'll find links to all of our guests. For Dia Abdo, you want to find everycampusofrefuge.net. The link is on nordenspiritradio.org, and you can track people down. You can connect with Dia there at Guilford College, where she's a professor of English. All of these links, as I said, are on nordenspiritradio.org. Please, when you visit our site, do post a comment on this program and consider donating. That's under our support menu because we depend on you for funding this. We do not depend on government or on corporations because those always come with strings attached. There are many good corporations and there's a lot of wonderful government actions and funding, but all of it introduce hoops you have to jump through. So we depend on you, our listeners, to support this program. Also remember to support your local community radio station. And I'm sorry to say, Dia, I don't have any idea which stations are right there. The community radio stations that might exist in Greensboro, North Carolina, where you live. Are there community radio stations there, Low Power FM or any of those? Guilford College has its own radio station, WQFS. I should get a hold of them and they should be carrying spirit in action as well. But I've got currently somewhere between 35 and 45 stations nationwide carrying Northern Spirit Radio programs. Please check them out via NordenSpiritRadio.org and remember to support them because getting the voice out, uh, we do it by podcast a lot these days, but by radio stations, you're reaching new ears every year. Please support them both with your wallet and with your hands. And again, Dia Abdo here, Every Campus of Refuge, the book American Refuge. Let's talk a little bit about some of the other stories of the people who have come in. You've got people from Burundi and Uganda already, and Palestine in your case. Iraq and Syria are some of the recents. And while you're telling their stories, you're also illustrating some general points about the refugee experience. There's a number of terms that we might differentiate. For instance, as part of our Quaker meeting here, we have a Muslim, he's a human rights and particularly women's rights and LGBT rights, Egyptian lawyer who had to seek asylum. Now, asylum is a different than just the simple refugee experience. Simple. I, I, I don't know that that word applies there. Talk about the different kinds of refugee experience. The people are leaving their home. Maybe they're displaced originally, and maybe that becomes permanent and gets pushed further. Talk about the different levels of experience, if you would. And folks, this is spelled out in particular the second half of American Refuge. You'll learn a lot of the nuts and bolts, as well as the wonderful stories of the refugees. So again, what are the various hues of refugee experience? At the baseline of all the refugee experiences is the experience of forced displacement. Someone who has been forcibly displaced, someone who has been forced to leave their home for particular reasons, and those reasons are race, ethnicity, religion, 
membership in a social group or political opinion. So there are very specific categories. If you are forced to leave your home because of one of those reasons, because you're persecuted for one of those reasons, then you can apply for refugee status. Now, as you're applying for refugee status, you're essentially an asylum seeker. You are seeking asylum at a border somewhere. So if you're Syrian, you might have left Homs, right, as the family that we were hosting, and then presented yourself to the police officers at the Jordanian border. You might be taken to a camp there until your case is processed. It takes two to five years to process your case, sometimes longer. As I said, it took Blaze 17 years for his case to be processed. During that time, you are being interviewed over and over again. There are long times in which you are waiting. Things might change in your life that derail your case. You might change your address. You might get married. One of your children might, you know, move away. Every time something changes in your case, that derails your case. Really, the most important thing to know is that a refugee or someone who achieves refugee status is someone who is then waiting for resettlement. They are eligible for resettlement. It doesn't mean that they'll achieve it, but they're eligible for resettlement in a third country. But you cannot be, for example, a climate refugee. Like that exists, right? People who leave because of climate disaster, people who leave because of economic disaster. Those are people who are seeking opportunity elsewhere. They might be seeking safety elsewhere, but those people are not eligible for what's considered the refugee status that is afforded by UNHCR and other organizations. A refugee, technically, the people who resettle in this country as refugees are individuals who have been vetted and found to be unable to return to their country of origin because of persecution, violence, fear of death, because of one of five categories. There are other categories that people conflate with refugee. Asylum seeker, for example. Asylum seeker, as I said, is someone who is still waiting for their case to be processed. They have not yet achieved that status that allows them to resettle in a third country. Or migrant. Migrant is someone who moves, but not necessarily by force. They might be moving by choice in search of transient economic or employment opportunities. An immigrant. An immigrant is someone who is also moving, but they might not be forcibly displaced or moved. They might be moving as I did. I'm an immigrant. I came to this country as an immigrant in pursuit of an education. I could have gone back to Jordan if I wanted to, but I chose to stay here and I'm a naturalized citizen now through marriage. So these terms are conflated with each other. You, they're used interchangeably. But what people need to know about refugees is that it's a very particular status that enables people who have been vetted to resettle in this country legally. They have been vetted based on persecution and have been found to be unable to return to their country of origin because of that persecution. They are people who are fleeing terrorism and violence. When refugees arrive to this country, they are afforded certain benefits. They are given $1,000 as a stipend. It's a one-time stipend that they receive to be able to start up their lives. They receive a social security number. They might receive food stamps. Many of them, most of them are eligible for that for their initial period here. And they have some kind of health insurance, Medicaid, for a period of time. Refugees are also expected to achieve self-sufficiency within 90 days. So after three months of arriving in this country, after a one-time stipend of $1,000 that's supposed to pay for your rent and your furniture and your transportation and all of that, you're supposed to achieve self-sufficiency. The other term that people use is IDP or internally displaced person. An internally displaced person is a person who has been forced to leave their town, but might not have left their country. So you might have gone from Homs in Syria to Damascus, 
And you are essentially displaced in Damascus, but you have not left Syria. That means you are internally displaced. And so there are different levels of displacement. People stay within their country. People leave their country. People languish for years in refugee camps. In fact, one of the most devastating statistics about refugees is that only 1% will ever resettle. 99% of refugees, and there are 27 million in the world, 99% of those will never resettle. They will live in refugee camps for the rest of their lives and their children's lives. A refugee camp is essentially a zone of statelessness. You're in a country, but you live without documents that enable you to get employment. You live without access to rights. You live without a pathway to citizenship. That's what it means to live in a refugee camp, right? You're living in limbo for the rest of your life and your children's lives. Resettlement, which is what happens to refugees when they come here, is a pathway to citizenship. It's a pathway to belonging. 99% of refugees never achieve that. That's such a sad and devastating number to hear. Your family was in a refugee camp in Jordan. You moved outside of it. Therefore, you started on a path. Did you become regular Jordanian citizens then? Yes. Is that limited? Who can do that? I mean, I don't assume people want to live in cardboard or mud structures in a, a refugee camp. I mean, they, you'd probably prefer to go somewhere else. Yeah. So the Palestinians who ended up in Jordan in 1967 were very lucky because there was a pathway to citizenship for those refugees in Jordan. The refugees who left Palestine and went to Syria and went to Lebanon in 1967 did not achieve a pathway to citizenship. So there are lots of refugee camps still in Syria and Lebanon where Palestinians live in a condition of statelessness. So it was, you know, through a variety of political mechanisms in Jordan that, you know, the political situation was different in Jordan that precipitated the inclusion of Palestinians. That was not the case for other countries. You mentioned the case of Cheps from Uganda. And I'm not sure how many of our listeners realize Uganda had, and I think still has, to be gay is illegal. That is to say, we can kill you. So in Chep's case, he has to flee for his life because his sexuality is not that which is assigned as legal in that country. There's very many different situations, as you've already pointed out, for why people have to leave. So Marwa, who was in Iraq, why did Marwa have to leave? So Marwa and Ali are an interesting case. So in terms of Chep's you know, it's a membership in a social group, right? For others, it's a political opinion, it's race, ethnicity. In this particular case, Ali and Marwa are SIV cases, special immigrant visa. This applies to people from particular countries where there were American troops and locals helped or did something with those troops that opens them up to charges of treason, collaboration, betrayal by their countrymen, and therefore opens them up to violence. So that was the case in Vietnam. It's the case in Afghanistan. It's the case in Iraq, where someone might have done something for an American company. And because of that support that they might have offered or work that they might have done, it might have been basic. I mean, in Ali's case, it really was just typesetting, you know, just very basic work for an American, for an Iraqi company that worked with an American company. So a special immigrant visa is a visa that is offered to or is given to people from certain countries where they helped or supported or did work for American troops. And that has endangered their lives. 
You mentioned the Afghans. Our Quaker meeting here in Eau Claire, Eau Claire Friends meeting, was part of uh, five or six different groups locally who bounded together to bring in 10 Afghan refugees here. And so we've been active in supporting them. You mentioned the $1,000 stipend. That, I believe, comes from the federal government. But that doesn't mean that's the only support will come to people. In fact, we arranged Lutheran Social Services coordinated our case here in Eau Claire and the Eau Claire Friends Meeting and different uh, Return Peace Corps Volunteers Group and all this all chipped in money so that there was going to be not just three months, but six months of rent and food and support trying to connect people up with Sahar Taman because she's a lawyer and Muslim. She also helped with the pro bono efforts. The legal work is endless and it's very annoying and it doesn't feel at all welcoming from my point of view. But what happened is for the 10 people who came to Eau Claire at that point, and there's more coming, there's all kinds of support that happens to them. But every campus or refuge, you're providing additional support. Guilford College is providing support. Are you providing free rent in that case so that the stipend doesn't have to go for rent? It can go for other purposes, right? Absolutely. That's the point of the Every Campus a Refuge movement is to leverage resources that allow people to have a softer landing and a stronger beginning and to really save those funds for later. And so campuses that participate in the program offer free housing, free rent, utilities, and access to facilities and amenities like Wi-Fi, the library, the gym, all for free. But yes, rent and utilities are free while the family is staying on campus. Did you also host a number of Afghans coming in? And because uh, there's a, a very large group, I think, came all at once, as opposed to there's a, a flow that continues forever from so many places where people are dealing with such hardships. How big of a inundation did you receive there in Greensboro? I'm not sure of the exact number. I can get it for you. It was in the hundreds, I think. But on Guilford's campus, we hosted 16 Afghan evacuees. Other ECAR chapters across the country have hosted large numbers of Afghan evacuees. Oklahoma State hosted 70. University of Tulsa hosted 20. There are other campuses that we supported who hosted up to 100 Afghan evacuees. I don't envy any refugee their experience, but there are different levels of privilege also within that system. And we had some experience of that here. Often the people who've worked with the U.S., some of them are privileged in their original society. They're re relatively well off. And to come to the United States and being treated as a commoner and with a different set of laws and expectations, how difficult has that been for every campus or refuge and particular in the Greensboro experience Muslim norms in many countries don't treat women the same way as they do here. And if you do the same thing to a woman here as is typical or normal or accepted in some countries, in some areas, you can get in trouble. We had an experience with that here. A man who thought that male-female relationships would be the same. And so you've got to educate about the current laws and cultural expectations and all that. How big a deal is that in your case? I will say that there is obviously incredible diversity among communities. And so certain beliefs, traditions, customs might be seen in, in one family and they might not be experienced in, a, in another family. I will say that also that one of the things that we saw or we heard 
more frequently than when, uh, with other groups was the level of isolation and homesickness that Afghan women experienced particularly because of just the drastic shift in their lives that happened and then the huge cultural transition being here. I think every campus of refuge and its best practices really focus on, and we, we are inspired by our refugee resettlement agency partner, Churchill Service, is, you know, the, really the strength-based model, which is to support people in achieving the goals that they set for themselves, whatever those might be, and ensuring that they understand the guidelines and the rules. And so providing an orientation to the life here in the United States that will help them achieve the kind of success that they want to achieve and they've decided for themselves. So it really is a very delicate balance of supporting the integration of a family without assuming that they will assimilate, right? That they will become like us or take on characteristics and traits that they don't want to take on, that they maintain their culture if they choose to maintain it or however they want to maintain what they'd like of themselves and and their background. And so it is, you know, you know, we we want to be as supportive as possible and to orient. We, We say we're cultural brokers, right? We want to orient people to their new lives, to their new cities so that they can make the decisions that are best for them. It's probably obvious to some of us and maybe not so much to others. Is there any particular reason why colleges, universities, campuses in particular are a good place for refugees to come in through? Yes, absolutely. And I I, I think I mentioned this in the book, but I was actually inspired to create Every Campus a Refuge when I heard Pope Francis in 2015 call on every parish in Europe to host a refugee family. And I thought that that particular call was brilliant because he was calling on small communities to do the work of welcome, right? Not countries, but communities, the parish. And, you know, it just occurred to me that a college or university is exactly like a parish, like a small town, a small city that has the resources like housing, like cafeterias, like clinics, like people who are cohesive. They're in the same place. They follow the same mission, the same values. And so campuses are ideal for this because they are cohesive enough as a community. They have the resources necessary to do the work on the ground, material resources, and they have their educational mission that really holds them accountable to their public service, right? Colleges and universities are all about experiential learning, service learning, their commitment to serving their communities, community engagement. And so Really, for me, it was this confluence of the space of a college or university is ideal because it's big enough and small enough to do this work meaningfully and to do it well. And also the values and missions of institutions and colleges and universities in terms of community engagement and public service and education means that they're the perfect place to do this work where everybody wins. The students win, the community wins, the refugee family wins. I think there's another thing I don't think you explicitly mentioned, Dia, and that is that I think there's a thirst, a welcomingness to diversity of culture that's part of campuses because so many people are learning, whether you're studying history, even if you're studying mathematics. I had the experience going to a college that was not in a metropolitan area, but still this teacher is from Japan. And I had that cultural experience just as being part of a campus. And so I think from that point of view, it feels less strange to have someone of a different skin color or a different accent or all of that is just so much more normal already in campus. Are there any common threads or indicators 
of which campuses are likely to join the movement. I think there's 10 campuses now. Lafayette College, I saw Wake Forest, Russell Sage, Old Dominion University. Why these campuses? Why did they accept this calling, whether it came from Pope Francis or from Dia Abdo? What were the conditions that nurtured this seed to grow into every campus a refuge? Initially, I thought it was maybe the private university could be a more fertile ground because private universities have more control over their resources in ways that public universities or state institutions do not. However, most recently, the campuses that have joined every campus a refuge have been state universities. And so clearly, both state universities and private universities can join the effort in ways that are meaningful. In fact, you know, again, Oklahoma State University is hosting 70 Afghan evacuees. So they can do this at a scale. They can do it at a higher level, potentially, uh, than private universities. Although the ECAR model is, you know, one family at a time, sort of deep engagement with that family. So what I have learned over the years is that what makes a campus a fertile ground is Yet you have to have a champion on that campus. There has to be a person who is committed, dedicated to seeing this through. This person doesn't necessarily have to be a decision maker, but they have to be the person who brings this to the decision makers and doesn't take no for an answer. <laughs> that sounds like Dia Abdo. <laughs> it does. Of course, when I got a yes immediately, and then I got another yes from our interim president when I asked for the second house to host Afghan evacuees. But yeah, on every campus, there has been a person that I can point to and say, yep. That's why it happened at Russell Sage. That's why it happened at Old Dominion. That's why it happened at Oklahoma State. And sometimes it's a dedicated group of people. At Lafayette College, it was a group of students. Lafayette, the chapter there was run by a student club. They are remarkable. So you have to have a champion who is willing to see this through and get it to the decision makers, or they can be a decision maker themselves. The other thing is a good relationship with your local resettlement agency or a good relationship with a resettlement agency because you're partnering with a resettlement agency. And so really having a good partnership has been instrumental to doing this work well. So, you know, I found that it doesn't have to be the money, the school with the money. In fact, I found that schools with no money are the ones who can really do this because it doesn't really require a lot of resources. It's a very small investment in something that's incredibly rewarding, huge rewards from a very modest investment financially. So yeah, I think you have to have also a university that's committed to its mission, whether it's community engagement or internationalization or globalization or service learning. So, you know, those three things, a commitment to the mission, a champion, and good partnerships. Just to be clear, and people can check more of this out at everycampusarefuge.net, linked on org. People don't have to be experts when they join the system. They just have to be able to connect to the experts who will nurture them in the right direction, right? Absolutely. And in this case, we are the experts. So Every Campus of Refuge has developed a lot of resources handbooks, manuals, implementation forms, maps that allow you to visualize the partnerships that we're talking about, trainings, community of practice, ongoing support. You don't have to reinvent the wheel. All you have to say is, I want to do this on my campus. I think this is a good fit. Hosting a family 
is something that my campus can learn from. And it's something that we can give back to the newcomers in our city to uplift our refugee community. And it's something that's in alignment with our strategic vision, our strategic mission, our goals as an institution around civic engagement, about, around globalization, around living and learning communities. There are so many ways that this can be really a fit for a campus and its educational curricular and co-curricular missions. And then if you think it's for you, please reach out to me and we will walk you through it. We have all the resources that allow you to implement this quickly, easily, and meaningfully. One of the things that makes me very sad is the degree of xenophobia in the United States. It, it's never been this high in my life before. And at 68 years, I've seen a lot. So it feels sad. And it, it's not equally distributed throughout the United States. There are areas which are worse or better in terms of welcome. But one of the things that I thought, if people are only thinking even with a half logical mind, you point out at the bottom of page 139, and it's footnote 37, in case you want to know, you made the comment on that page, studies show that refugees overtake natives in contributing to economic growth. And I'm so aware of all the signs around Eau Claire, where I live right now. We're looking for someone to hire. We please get someone in. And it, it turns out that a number of the Afghan refugees that came here, there's a, a place about 30 miles away, a factory. They were giving good bonuses. They'd hire. You didn't need to speak a lot of English yet. All of this kind of thing. So that company, I'm sure, is incredibly thankful that the refugees came in because simply there are not enough workers here. And that's a situation widespread. I had to go look at the footnote because I said, so what evidence is there that they overtake natives in contributing to economic growth? It doesn't surprise me, by the way, because my experience of refugees and immigrants is that generally they're amongst the most hardworking of people. They're they work much harder than I do. And I saw that your footnote pointed out to National Immigration Forum, the New American Economy, Journal on Migration and Human Security 6. All of these things are indicating that these incoming people, they know what they're working for, and that they're not generally assuming privilege. A lot of the xenophobic talk is that they're coming here to get free handouts. And that's so few of the people who would actually be doing something like that. What's been your experience? I think one of the things that I am surprised by it, because when you know or understand the refugee experience, which is essentially you're under threat, however that looks, it's violent. And you are strong enough, resilient enough to get your family together and get out of there safely, to cross a national border in very dangerous ways, whether it's on foot or in a boat or in the back of a truck. And then you live in a refugee camp under circumstances that are indescribable, no education for your children, no jobs, right? But you've survived. You have survived that experience and you have managed to get your family to a place where you can now succeed. Why would that person then not give a hundred and billion percent to make it? Those are the people, right? Like those are the people who have shown in every step of their life that they are in it to succeed. They are in it to make a better life for their children. They are in it to work hard, right? Those are folks who have worked hard and will continue to do so because that is their goal. That is their objective in life. So everything about their experience actually tells you that those are the people you want around you. They have made it through incredible odds and have succeeded and have maintained a positivity and an optimism and a joy for life 
that truly belies the kind of horror that they've seen. So I say in the book that the refugee story is in so many ways the kind of the ideal American narrative, the hardworking, you know, people who want to make it, they want to succeed, they want to make a better life for their kids. And yet we continue to shun them, even though they are the sort of really the just the ideal reflection of who we are and what we say about ourselves in this country. Absolutely. And folks, again, the book, American Refuge, True Stories of the Refugee Experience by Dia Abdo. The link is on NordenSpiritRadio.org to every campus, a refuge.net. One last thing I wanted to come back for, and I told you to remind me of this, Dia, and that is feminisms. And most people, I think, in the U.S., are ignorant of or simply are thirsty to hear about Muslim feminisms or Arab feminisms. Tell us a little bit about that. And because your specialty is again writing self, right? Yeah. So the Arab world is vast. It's 22 countries with people from every race you can imagine, every ethnicity, every religious background, Arab Jews, Arab Christians, Arab Muslims, every denomination that you can imagine within those. And so there are Arab feminisms because Arab women and people who advocate for rights of women and others come from every walk of life. And just like there are multiple American feminisms that focus on gender rights or labor rights or on age or, you know, or intersectionality, it's the same in the Arab world. The Arab world, again, is vast and, you know, just incredibly diverse in its foci. It's what the, the things that interest feminists might be different in one country than another. And it's the same for Islam. You know, the Muslim world is large. It's larger than the Arab world, right? So there are many Muslims who are not Arabs, and, and there are lots of Arabs who are not Muslim. And so it was important for us to, you know, when I teach Arab and Islamic feminisms, that S is very important to me at the end. I always fight for it because the registrar is like, we don't have enough letters in the title to, uh, to be able to put feminisms. Can we just put feminism? I'm like, no. Because that is actually one of the myths that I want to bust, which is that there is not one way that the Arab or Muslim world advocates for women's rights. There are ways that are grounded in Islam. There are ways that are grounded in secularism that completely defy and reject Islamic ideologies around feminism and vice versa. And so, you know, it's, it really just comes down to there are millions and millions of women in the Arab and Muslim world, and there are feminisms that go along with that. You know, as I talk to all the wonderful people like you, world healers, people who are doing what I think is divine work in this world, I always look to you also for leads to the other people I should be talking to. So when we get off the air, I think that maybe you can feed me a couple names of people that I really need to be talking to, to open eyes, open ears, open hearts. And folks, the book, American Refuge, will break your heart at times, and it will also lighten your heart and let light shine through. Uh, there's so many inspirational stories, as well as all the heartbreak that you will witness as you get to know all of the folks that Dia Abdu introduces us to in this book. True stories of the refugee experience, including her own. And I want to thank you, Dia, so much for writing this book, for teaching, for opening Greensboro, Guilford College, opening the world to more of our brothers and sisters who need our care and our love. Thank you so much for joining me for Spirit in Action. Thank you. It was a pleasure. Thank you so much for having me. The theme music for this program is Turning of the World, performed by Sarah Thompson. Check out all things Spirit in Action on northernspiritradio.org. 
guests, links, stations, and a place for your feedback, suggestions, and support. Thanks for listening. I'm Mark Helpsmeet, and I hope you find deep roots to support you to grow steadily toward the light. This is Spirit in Action. Oh